Margaret Cousins was one of the most energetic leaders of the Irish women's suffrage movement, a co-founder of the Irish Women's Franchise League with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. She tirelessly campaigned for those who sought participation in political, economic and social life, first in Ireland and then in India. Her work in India, where she lived for 40 years, is perhaps not as well known in this country. A short biographical film called Margaret Cousins of Ireland and India tells the story, pretty much in her own words, of a lifelong pursuit of emancipation, education and empowerment for women and for girls. You can watch it online now at manaw100.ie. And I'm joined by Sinead McCool, curator of manaw100.ie, which is part of the Decade of Centenaries programme. Welcome back to the programme, uh, to our programme, Sinead. Thank you, Miles. Lovely um, to be here. Margaret Cousins, Greta Cousins, as she would have been uh, probably better known in Ireland, she was quite at home herself, she says, with politics from a young age. Why was that? Well, she's a really interesting character, as you know, and I, I, I hear, you know, the term Greta Cousins, which people will be familiar with, was how she was known to family and friends and in Ireland. But later on in, in India, she was better known formally as, as Margaret E. Cousins. So she was born in Roscommon and went from an early age as the eldest girl of 14 children. Her father encouraged her with her reading by asking her to read to him aloud from the newspapers of the day. And he was a petty sessions clerk and so interested in the in the happenings that were going on. Of course, this is the period of the land war, you know, coercion acts, home rule bills, as she said herself. In her, her own writings, she talks about being completely at home in politics from the age of 10. So at a fairly early age, she leaves Boyle in, in Roscommon. Mm-hmm. She comes to Dublin. She meets a man called James Cousins. Tell us about James Cousins. Well, she's very interesting and we're very fortunate to have their what they call their geography, which is a lovely way of describing the, the way that they jointly wrote the book of their lives. And one of the things that's most interesting about it is the sort of the, the modern marriage that they had in that they decided they wouldn't have children, that they would work for others. And she wasn't originally attracted to James because he was an accountant and it was through their love of the arts. So he was an accountant who was a playwright and a poet and it was through the poetry and the literary lives that they were drawn together. And I mean, he he completely transformed her or she was transforming when she met him. She had this very interesting quote about how when she came to Dublin to study music, she was at the uh, Royal Irish Academy of Music, but studying for a degree um, through the Royal University, that she was introduced to a new life. And she said she she broke her shell from the inside. I think that's a really interesting idea. In a, so she was open to what he was introducing her to. Very early on, they, they joined together the Theosophical Society in, in Dublin, which had, you know, had a place where they met at Three Eli Place, a group of like-minded people. So she began to read widely and began to read really about India at that early stage. And of course, the headquarters was in India. Um, the music we will we'll come back to mm-hmm. um, a, a little bit later. But uh, th- as you said, they started to do things in common. One of the things, uh, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that uh, James Cousins agreed essentially to become a feminist, uh, but she agreed <laughs> to become a vegetarian. Yeah, and that was on the wedding day, which I thought was uh, sort of interesting because obviously she 
couldn't eat what was being provided and went away from her own wedding feast hungry. So it's a great read, the book. And we've, we've taken a lot of the her direct quotations from her writing. I mean, unusually, she was writing about her life. Uh, between just her political writing, she also writes personally. So you've got this wonderful colour of the person as she sort of comments on what had gone on in, in their lives lives together. And, and vegetarian, and was it a vegetarian association meeting in London that she ha- happened upon another meeting in the, the same location. And that's how she inv- came involved in the Women's Council and then came back and was involved with Hannah G. Skeffington, of course, in setting up the Irish Women's Franchise League. So she was very open to uh, new ideas and new beliefs. I mean, very interesting character. In terms of her work with the Irish Women's Franchise League, like a number of her contemporaries, uh, she spent a certain amount of time in what we would describe as chokey. She, 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 was, she was arrested a couple the times and she was jailed. Yes. And, and you know, when people think about those uh, suffrage cartoons and all of that, or the, the people that, you know, went to jail for the cause, I mean, she's she's one of them. I mean, she's breaking the windows and she talks about, you know, that the sound of the breaking windows reverberated throughout the world, that, that they were talking about, you know, breaking the system. And, you know, she talks about the spirit of women being epic and something that we would sort of associate the wording even today. And so what you find when you look at the work related to her was she seemed to be somebody who was able to network in the true sense. You know, we use all those terms today, like, you know, influencer and networking and all of that. And and she was doing it at such a high level from such a young age. And did she, when she was in jail, when she was in, she was in Mount Joy, she was in Tullamore, did she go on hunger strike? Because a number of, uh, of, of suffragists then did, Irish suffragists and obviously British as well. Yes, she did. And, and, you know, she said, you know, joining the long line of, you know, of patriots by, by her time in prison, in Hannah Sheehy Skeffington's collection in the National Library of Ireland, you know, you've got the censored letters coming from Tullamore Prison. And so we've had a lovely um, sort of layering of the visuals within the film as well, where we've, where we've possibly used original archive and sourced it because everything that we're doing on Manol100.ie is to sort of, you know, to be used by people so that every time that you find something that you can have another jumping off point for more more research in it. Though so she's really well known. And I mean, we have Jyoti Atawal, who's actually in the film, who's, who's writing a biography of her, you know, in, based in India. And there is more to come on Margaret Cousins. But this, I hope, will be of, of you know, general interest and also specialist interest. One of the things that brought her to India, you've already adverted to it, was mm-hmm. theosophy. Mm-hmm. She became a theosophist. What is theosophy? In terms of the organisation, it was a form of religion. It was based in spiritualism. It was Annie Besant, actually, who who organised this religion and it was for the betterment of others. So it was looking for what she had worked for in Ireland and what the the organisation became involved in was education. So there were schools and there was a college. What they were doing is is going through the world, you know, spreading the beliefs, but also, um, you know, gathering people together. So Annie Besson, for example, became involved in Indian nationalism, became involved in this empowerment of women, you know, worked towards putting together um, the groups that Margaret then used to, she wrote the first in 1917, the first list of women's um, rights for their own suffrage. So while they're, they're theosophists and they're, she's working with Annie Besant in the, in the things that Annie Besant is interested in, in many ways in the film we try to sort of separate her out and make sure that we give her voice through what she was doing. So she works between the Theosophical Society and her own work in the same direction. Now, in 1918, Mm. 
Some of what she was looking for was realised in that general election in December of 1918, when, as you put it in the film, some women were allowed to vote. Explain some women to be. When they got the vote in 1918, women had to be either over the age of 30, they had to be university educated, so she would have qualified on both of those counts or have had been on a, a rates list, so mm. they had property qualifications as they were described. So, yeah, she would have been able to vote, but of course she didn't cast her vote because, of course, by then they were in, in India. In India yeah. yeah. Now, what was she, when she went, first of all, she was very much involved in, I suppose she was all her life, but she was principally involved in education, wasn't she? Yeah, and that was, and James had gone over to, to run at the Theosophil College, so he had got the principal role, and then she began to um, teach school. So she was running a school, and what was interesting in those early stages you know she never was quite content to, to do what was the day job she she immediately started to you know to network within the community and try and solve social issues as best she could and she used her her sort of Irish so you know hospitality and ability to network and so she started at first in the school but then very quickly had spread out and within five years which is which is incredible when you think about you know sort of integration and into a community she was up, she was asked to join the Indian Women's University which had been established in in Pune as it was then or Pune as it is known now and and she was part of their senate so so very quickly she's seen as somebody who who is able to sort of command a sort of a leadership position um, and she takes everything on as, as it's presented to her. She, she seemed to be very confident in, in what she could bring. And one of the things she was very concerned about when she went there at a very, very early stage was child marriage. Yeah, I mean, she was very aware when she was teaching school that, you know, children as young as, as 10, I mean, she, you know, she writes a lot about it and she, she began to speak to the parents of the children in the initial stages to try and keep them in the school system. And then, and then we're talking about girls here exclusively. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yes. And 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 so what? What she found was that you know how was she going to tackle these major issues that were like so much larger than just a locality? So what she then went is is she went the route of looking at education as a way of of making a network of a sisterhood is how she described it. And one of the things that's really important to remember when we look at the women who come to another country, Margaret was always communicating with Hannah G. Skeffington at home. In turn, they were involved in the International League of Peace and Freedom. They were talking to their counterparts in America. You know, you see even in her correspondence, you know, Alice Park goes to India and she, you know, she meets up with Margaret Cousins. So when we talk about a global community of women activists, I mean, it stretches really far. And then later on in her life, she ends up at the League of Nations. She ends up involved in, in organisations where she's speaking about India on that international stage. And she's also, you know, travelling to, you know, to Japan. She's gone, you know, she's in the Hawaiian Islands. She's across America. So she's always sort of spreading the message of what's happening in India and speaking on behalf of communities in places where she has access, sometimes as an Irish woman and sometimes representing India. There's an interesting centenary here because uh, aside from her involvement in Ireland, where I would have first come across her, was when she, in 1923, is appointed as a magistrate, first female magistrate in India as part of the of the British colonial system. So, I mean, is that the reason why this is the year to to have a, a close-up of Margaret Cousins? Well, I suppose the, the, the beauty of the Manal 100 project has been that we have been leading on women 
exclusively in this period of the decade of centenaries. And I always think that it's interesting from Margaret's cousin's point of view that, you know, now Minister Martin, you know, who set up the Women's Caucus is the is the minister and, you know, you know, obviously supporting this project. And so what's fantastic about it is, is you get a close up look at various women. So we're making it based on the, the fact that she becomes this non-Indian woman magistrate um, in 1923, which is exceptional. But it's also a way to look back and look forward, if you know what I mean. So, you know, it gives us an opportunity then to look again at where what became of the women of the suffrage movement, because, you know, so often people say, well, why weren't they elected to the Doyle, for example? Mm. Margaret took her place on the bench of Sidiped, the court of Madras on the 19th of February, 1923. And she talked about it as a new beginning in the administration of British India, obviously, before India got independence. And when she talked about it in her book, and she talked about the feeling that she had. And, you know, you'd expect that she'd say like she she was full of joy and she was proud and all of that. And then she described her feeling as loneliness, being the only woman in, in a vast country. And all of a sudden, you know, have this image of her as, you know, that she's the one who's on that bench doing that. And then she said that as soon as other women became appointed, she said that an age old inhibition on the activities of women in the service of the country was broken, which I thought was a really lovely way of expressing that. Um, But, you know, one of the other things I think, you know, we talk about her travelling vast distances. You know, she was, she she literally was the original globetrotter. And, uh, you know, even think about India and you look at the map of India and you, you know, and you're seeing the distances and then, you know, put it back a hundred years. And I was asking, you know, about whether or not, you know, she would have travelled by train and they go, no, in some districts they, they that she wouldn't. It would have been, you know, horse and cart or, you know, very basic transportation between rural outposts, as it were. In 1927, then, she becomes involved in something called the All India Women's Conference, which is an organisation that apparently exists to this day. What was her involvement with that organisation? What was the aim of that organisation? Well, it started out of the education piece. I mean, she, she put out, a, a, you know, a, an appeal to all of these women in, across India, like 22 different people she sent out you know, her message to about an appeal to Indian women about the the issue of education. And she said she was surprised at the response that she got. And she was the sort of the the conduit, the person who did, you know, got wires and letters from all these different places. And so began at first, it was called the all, the organisation in um, what is Chennai today was the all India Women's Association, which still exists. And what's really incredible about this network that still exists today is that, you know, they provide women to go along to police stations to assist women who are giving reports to the police. They have, you know, women involved in in craft. They have education. They have teaching services. And so what they do is exactly what Margaret wanted all of those years ago and that's continued on and, you know, the banner across the, the you know, the entrance, you know, her, her photograph is there along with all these in, Indian women. So, so that's in, in Chennai and this wouldn't have been possible, this film, we worked with the Department of Foreign Affairs and it's interesting to talk about the sort of the nature of the involvement, let's say, with St. Bridget's Day and, and, you know, in terms of how we're now looking again at the role of women and, you know, you wouldn't be able to do and tell the story if it hadn't been for somebody on the ground going and collecting this information. It's almost like, you know, when Americans come and they want to research and you have to go to the local townland, you know, to be able to unpick the story and then to find their archive. And and Padder, who's based in, in, in New Delhi, travelled to Chennai for us and he, he was on the ground. And so that's what you're seeing. That's the lovely layering in this film and the uniqueness of it and the original research. And, and so, you know, what was important as well is that later then that grew 
into the organisation that people may be more familiar with, which is the All India Women's Conference, which ended up, you know, rotating to all these different places. Now, Margaret herself was president by 1937, but it was led out by Indian women from all the different, you know, areas. And and that that happened 10 years later in 1927, when she had seen the network and the importance of that organisation. So both organisations exist today. And one of the wonderful people that we have in the film who really is able to articulate, I suppose, a love for Margaret Cousins, if you could describe it like that. She speaks about them as if she knows them herself and Jim. Um, so she's wonderful. And uh, that's Sheila Carpery. And uh, she is just, uh, she's now currently in a role. It's a voluntary role. It's all the, the people that work in the All India Women's Conference are volunteers. And she says that, they, that they're always taken the, you know, with the idea that Margaret is a foreigner, but she says we don't see her as a foreigner because she became one of us. And we have to remember that she lived there for 40 years. I mean, so she was able to negotiate through different communities and different cultures in order to achieve what she needed to achieve. And sometimes when you read that in a book, it doesn't seem... Uh, you know, it seems like a statement rather than something that actually happened. And to see the the footage of what's happening today, a hundred years on, those and then her beliefs, which are you know empowerment and equality, continue today. So in in the campus in New Delhi, you see the women's hostel, you see the you know the 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 building. Um, Sarjuni Naiji was one of the women who was one of the presidents, and and you know her lecture hall is there and. It just makes you very proud of, I suppose you, we can claim her as an Irish woman, and, uh, it, but, but they're very proud of her too in India. And you can see that very clearly. As you said, one of the interesting things in the film is when you go into the headquarters, I think, of the All India Women's Conference, they have mm. this wall of fame. And there she is, the photograph of, of, of an Irish woman, of, of Greta Cousins, right, right in the middle mm, of it. Yeah. Um, now, she never, uh, uh, and I'm saying this in the most positive possible way, she never lost her ability to be a troublemaker. Because when it came to <laughs> the campaign for, uh, for, for, for independence in India, she becomes involved in that. She's back in jail again. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is that she set out to go to jail in that she knew that they were prohibited from speaking publicly. She had returned from a, a tour of America. And this is back to the relationship between herself and James as well. She had been separated from him. He, had, he was, you know, he was now involved in, you know, the arts of India and he was, you know, still lecturing and doing, as they would say, his own thing. And so they're communicating. We don't have the letters or to document this, but, he, but you know that, she, that she's made a deliberate decision to go into prison. She knows that she's going to get international coverage because she's just come from America and, you know, you know, they're talking about it over there. And, you know, it obviously reaches the papers here. And, and then when she goes into prison, she does exactly what, what all of the other women had done in prison, which is she sets up education within the prison and she's campaigning and, and speaking to other people about what she's witnessed from the inside. So she's, as I said, anywhere she goes, she's of influence. So she knew what she was about. She was an Indian nationalist. She was an Irish nationalist. She did come back to Ireland, unlike a lot of people who, who emigrate, back in 1927 and didn't particularly like, and who can blame her, what she saw. She kept in touch with Ireland, not, not, not quite at the end of her life because her, her, her last sort of 10 years where she was ill and you don't have a, a body of documentation, obviously, from that time. But yeah, she did. She kept in touch with what was happening. And when they came back, I mean, you, you know, you can imagine like they left in 13. So we've just been commemorating that 10 years. And 
Dublin was nearly unrecognisable. She'd gone in the, the 1890s in that wonderful milieu of the Celtic revival and what the excitement and all of the... Now, now sometimes you come back and you're now, beyond, you know, middle-aged and, and youth and everything's a little bit tarnished. And, you know, sometimes people say that even when they return, that, you know, they never go back to the Ireland they've been in. But for them, they were very concerned about what was happening. And this is back to the, what happens in the League of Nations. She goes to the League of Nations representing Ireland Ireland in, you know, attending disarmament conferences and then, you know, coming back and writing back to her, we presume her, you know, friends in Ireland about what she's witnessing, what she's seeing on the world stage. So we're, we're back again to a group of women who were always working towards peace. I mean, she was involved in militant, being militaristic, but she valued peaceful, democratic people being politicised in order to help, you know, people's conditions and all levels of society. And I think that while we know that she used militant methods, I think ultimately she was for a stable and functioning society. And in some ways, I suppose, you know, in our in our film, we, we wanted to highlight that the causes that she fought for and, you know, are still being looked at by not only, I suppose, Ireland in, in, in their official capacity, but also in these voluntary organisations in India. She spent more than half of her lifetime in India. How she remembered, she hardly remembered here, unfortunately. How she remembered in India? Oh, no, she is remembered in India. I suppose, again, you have the same thing. I mean, you know, we'll go back to what you said at the beginning to me and you refer to as Greta Cousins and we would have a shorthand at times and even when I'm listening to you on the radio at home, you know, have this sense that we know their friendship groups, we know that material inside out and, and sometimes you assume that people know about somebody just because you do and I think that, that we have seen a, a much more of a focus on this but I suppose I go back to the same thing again is that we wouldn't be making this film if she didn't have a significant presence in India, if she she hadn't been remembered. And when we set out to look at this story, if you could look at what was on the internet before and then compare it to the film, you can see the, the vast amount of sort of original research. And, and what they were very happy about, both in Chennai and in New Delhi, was that they were showing their, their own library, the Margaret Cousins Library in this organisation. And I just hope that there's going to be a, a stream of Irish people who'll go and use the library and, and do some more research on the back of this. I said we'd come back to the mm. music, uh, to her involvement in the writing of the Indian National Anthem. That's something that's always fascinated me about mm. her, that it was an Irish woman. Or was it? I mean, what, what, what is the story there? Because there are, different, there are different stories about her involvement in that process. If you're researching on the internet, you can see that there's a, there's a sort of conflict. Some places you'll see that she composed the piece. Other people said that she preserved the tune. And so what I figured the story was that, that Tagore was with the cousins. This is the great Indian poet, Rabindranath Tagore. So you're suggesting mm-hmm. that she may have been a, a kind of a, of a bunting figure. She may have been somebody who preserved an existing tune rather than somebody who composed a tune which went on to become the anthem. Well, what people are saying is that that it was a set of verses, that it would have remained a set of verses. He was in giving a presentation, you know, obviously a musical evening. She herself had had studied music composition, so she may have had a hand in that. Anyway, the short film is called Margaret Cousins of Ireland and India. She is an absolutely fascinating character and and, and well done. And I'm delighted that somebody has, has highlighted her. Uh, on this very, very interesting centenary. You can find it online now at manaw100.ie and it's presented by my guest, Dr Sinead McCool. Sinead, many thanks for joining us. Thank you, Miles, and thank you for having me.
After the break, I'll be joined by Commandant Daniel Iotis, whose new book tells the story of Ireland's military archives. Stay with us.